Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 5th, 2013. This is episode 1105 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. If I sound in a good mood, I am. It has rained and been crappy and cold and wet for Dave's. I've spent the last three days building a floor in the chicken coop while it poured rain and hailed on top of the dadgone thing. And I found a lot of things that I needed that I didn't have, and it slowed down my progress. And today I get to slap in a few more two-by-sixes and some perches, throw some wood in there, and those chickens get their place. But the good news, for me anyway, and I don't know if this is for you, I hope uh, you have the same thing I do. Crystal clear blue skies, 60 degrees, and beautiful out. And the birds, uh, which are growing like weeds, are pretty happy about it. They've been pretty miserable the past couple days. I do got a tip for you guys, though. So we have these birds, and they're still small enough that they're in the brooder at night. They're about to be in the chicken coop at night as soon as their coop's done. They're, they're pretty much to the point now where they're big enough for that. They're still to the point now, especially without having uh, any big brooding hens around them to take care of them, that if they get wet in a cold day, they could end up dead. But... We don't want to keep them locked up in the brooder. There's 17 of them. They're, they're like arm in arm in there at night now when they're in there. That's why I was working so hard to get the coop done. So uh, we put them out in the chicken tractor. they got plenty of room in there, and they're pretty happy in there, and they can huddle up when they feel cold. But you want to keep them dry, and it's been raining and raining and raining. So what we did, we took a U.S. Army GI shelter half, and we just stretched it over the center of the uh, – of the coop, put a little thing for some elevation in the center so the water would shed off, and then weighted down the two long-tipped ends uh, with a couple rocks, and that kept them nice and dry, and they still could get out in the sun on the occasions when some sun came out, when it would stop raining, and, uh, you know, those things are about 7 to 10 bucks. It's worth having a bunch of them around. Uh, not only can they be a tent, there's a lot of things that they can do. They are pretty water repellent. You spray them with a little extra water repellent, you've got a lister bag that'll hold water, collect water, catch water. Um, there's a ton of things I think you can do with them. They're dirt cheap. Just a little tip here at the beginning of the show, uh, rather than straight into the housekeeping. But on that note, let's go ahead and take care of the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one is always, let's take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping ensure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is what I consider a premium sponsor of the show. Not only... Are they a great company? Not only have they been with us a long time, not only do we buy from them all the time, but they provide a tremendous benefit to the member support brigade. They have a program. It's $50 a year for their premium membership. After that, you get 25% off everything that they sell. If you use a lot of herbals in your life, and we do, that is a huge benefit. Uh, and it's worth the 50 bucks. You get it for free as an MSB member. That's just one reason I consider them such a great sponsor. The second reason is I have never needed something in the herbal world, went there and couldn't find it. Just never happened. They have everything. I mean everything. The next reason is if I'm going to be using something like herbals instead of pharmaceuticals uh, to, to gently correct issues or to just improve my life overall, well, I don't want to be using crap that's been sprayed with pesticides, do I? So when I go to Western Botanicals, I know that every single thing there – is either organically grown or wild crafted, and I'm not going to have any crud and crap in the stuff that's supposed to be healthy. 
On top of that, there's real people there that really give a damn about you and me and other people that do business with them. And if you pick the phone up and call them, they'll help you. And if you need a greater level of consultation than the person that answers the phone can give you, instead of making it up or saying they can't help you, what they'll say is, hold on, we'll get somebody in touch with you. And they'll have someone contact you back and take care of giving you a better consultation. That just doesn't happen with your off-the-shelf products. But... Western Botanicals is still highly cost competitive with them. It's a great company with great products and great people. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Another great company with great people that I am so absolutely phenomenally out of my mind happy to be doing business with today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Um, you're going to hear from a caller today that kind of gets a little bit excited about the fact that he even gets to be on the air on the Survival Podcast occasionally when he makes a phone call and I include his call in a call-in show. Um, and, and you know what? It's weird to me that people feel that way about my show now. But that's how I feel about the, 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 the people over at Backwoods Home Magazine. Jackie Clay, Masada Ayub, Dave Duffy, John Silvera, and all the great writers over there. I've been reading that magazine since I got out of the Army in 1993. The fact that I'm working with those people today, and some of those people have been on my show, is phenomenal to me. And what a great, great company to be able to have as a sponsor of the show on top of it all. Check them out today. If you want self-sufficiency and self-reliance in a magazine with a libertarian flair, Backwoods Home is the magazine for you, and they also support the Member Support Brigade. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the TSP Gear Shop. Man, we have some cool stuff there. Check out the French Press coffee mugs. And uh, there's been some rumbling. People want a Jack Spirico-approved bug-out bag, fully equipped. I'm working on that now with Kelly. We're going to be putting that together. That will be coming to the uh, TSP Gear Shop soon. Quick update on TSP Mint. I got an email from somebody yesterday that was mad because we did a show from Silver Circle, and then they went, well, I'm ready to buy some more silver. They went over to TSP Mint to buy some silver from me, which I appreciate. And they got a notice saying, hey, it's closed. Okay, I'll tell you why it's closed. Um, Chris, Chris Dwayne and I together in February sold more silver than AOCS and Mulligan Mint uh, forecasted to sell for pretty much the first half of 2013. We just went way beyond what they were prepared for. And due to that, and it was more Chris than me, by the way, um, they got in a backlog with being able to get enough silver in to put out the coins fast enough to meet orders, and some of you guys waited a long time for your silver. I rolled heads, but I rolled heads nicely because I know the problem that they're under. There was some customer service level issues at some levels that I got a little bit, well, I opened a can of Jack's Miracle Whoop-Ass uh, in a friendly way. And I believe they're getting through those. But what I decided was it was better for us to shut sales down, catch up and take care of everybody, let them catch up and get some breathing time. And Chris has done the same thing on his end with the Silver Bullet Silver Shield. And once that's rectified, come back strong and be able to produce for you. They are doing it right. They have put in their own smelting equipment. They are now, instead of buying blanks, all they need is raw silver, and they're able to smelt their own blanks. It just takes time. A growth curve of a company, if anybody's run one, knows there's a planned growth curve, and then there's immense success. And you can only compensate for either one so much. So the reason it shut down, Rob was completely willing to keep the site open. I said shut it down. Uh, until you guys get caught up. And they're almost there. We'll probably have it open next week or the week after. And we have a new coin coming that is cool. I just wanted 
everybody to get 100% satisfaction. That's what I strive for. You guys are awesome. You bought a ton of silver, literally a ton of silver. That's why we, we can only you know do so much. Silver margins are razor thin. You got to do high volume. It's just a volume that we never expected. And Chris Dwayne, I think this guy on one day sold 20,000 ounces of silver. I think I sold 10,000 ounces in the whole month. He sold 20,000 in a day. And uh, that, just, that just created a backlog and a hiccup. And I apologize for it, and I've heard from some of you, and every single person that I've heard from, I've got in touch with team over at AOCS and made sure you guys are taken care of. I'll continue to do that. And if you have any problems, let me know. I will fix it, and I will fix it in a way that you know everybody in, this, in the supply chain will understand that is my commitment to you. Uh, with that, I want to go ahead and skip some of the usual housekeeping because it went a bit long there and go ahead and take first call today. Yeah, Jack, this is Baba in Arizona. Uh, calling uh, with information for people interested in the Walking to Freedom program. If you live in one of the repressive states, here's an opportunity that I thought people might be interested in. The company I work for, Freeport MacMoran Copper and Gold, is currently expanding operations in Arizona and New Mexico and is actively looking for engineers, electricians, instrumentation technicians, millwrights, diesel mechanics, Welder, boiler makers, laborers, truck drivers, you get the picture. Big expansion of mining operations, needing professionals and tradespeople. We have mines in Tucson, Baghdad Globe, Safford, Marinci, Arizona, and Silver City, New Mexico, with the biggest project being in Marinci, Arizona. Uh, this is Arizona. It's a freedom-loving state. It's a good opportunity for people with a strong work ethic to come to work uh for a company that believes in a work ethic and believes in paying bonuses to people who put in the effort to deserve it. Uh, anyway, this is, this is an opportunity for people to come to work where there is already a job available. Uh, you can, I will be giving the uh, link, I'll send you an email with the link to the uh, company's career page so people can look up and see if they're qualified for any of these jobs. But it's a good opportunity for somebody who lives in New York or New Jersey that wants to get out of there to come straight to a job in a freedom-loving state. Thank you, Jack, and I'll follow this up with an email with that, with that link. Thank you. Okay, I usually uh, screen these calls roughly a, a week after they come in, so I don't remember seeing that email. It's quite possible that it fell through the cracks or the spam monster ate it or maybe the guy never got around to sell a senator in but it wasn't real hard uh to look up Freeport Mac Moran uh and find their career page for you guys. So I do have that in the show notes for you. I think this is indicative of the reality in a lot of the southern United States, in the north and northwestern, uh, I should say western and northwestern United States, that there are, there's a huge amount of growth going on in spite of the fact that we just keep hearing the recession word, the recession word, the recession word. Um, I think part of the problem is that everybody's still under the impression that prosperity doesn't even look like the Bush years. It looks like the Clinton years. And I know some of you cringe when I say the Bush years. I'm talking about the early, mid-Bush years, where there were some pretty good economic times. But even then, and I was involved in a lot of corporate sales and things like that, what people were waiting for was the resurgence of what prosperity looked like in the dot-com boom, which was an arboration. And I think that it's easy to short sell ourselves on the reality of what's going on right now. This, uh, 
This economy is in a recovery. And I don't think any politician with any letter after their name of any sort gets any credit for it. I think that it's uh, it's it's a reality on the ground that there's a lot of resiliency in America. I think that the people piloting the plane at the top are going to crash it into a mountain sooner or later. But there is an opportunity right now uh, to do well. And that, that opportunity could be five, ten years or more. I'm thinking five to ten years is about as long as we're going to be able to get away with continuing to, uh, to, to go into debt over a trillion and a half dollars a year. And, you know, but, but it's here now. And a lot of it's in southern states. A lot of it's in states with more freedom in spite of the fact that some of the commenters on the blog don't seem to buy that. The migration statistics bear it out. Uh, the unemployment statistics bear it out. The job growth rates bear it out. Uh, and it's, it's in states that are willing right now to invest in natural resources and to develop natural resources that this is going on at the highest level, like Arizona, to a lesser degree, but to you know a higher degree than a lot of other places in New Mexico, like Texas. Um, we have jobs. We have people. Uh, it, it's not just that there's jobs here, guys. This is what I think people need to understand. There's jobs that are difficult to fill. And if you start really looking, you might find not only is there a job, but a job that pays significantly more than you expect. Don't think that, you know, because of any misgivings about the South is where a bunch of rednecks live, watch NASCAR, drink Coca-Cola out of a baby bottle. Um, don't let that bullshit get in your head if you're from some of these states that are considering themselves more sophisticated about what wages are like. Um, a, a good engineer in Texas is paid very, very well. Um, a, a, a UPS driver in Texas does well for themselves. I'll, I'll tell you that. I used to sell insurance for a very, very brief period of my time, and we we sold to UPS uh, f- f- folks. I lived in some pretty nice housing again because the housing's so daggone affordable. So the reason I played this call though, really is so that I could kind of show you this is what I want. This is what I want out of walking to freedom. I want people doing things just like this. Um, not everybody that calls with something like this can I put on the air. Not everybody sends me an email says call me. Uh, by the way, guys, I gotta I gotta say something here. I get emails from people that are basically like, I can do this and I can do that and I can do this. Call me at my number. I guys, I don't have time to call every person that wants to talk to me about something, even if it sounds like something really cool. I don't. Um, I have a limited space-time continuum around my existence like all of us do. Um, with Walking to Freedom, I really got want you guys to make the effort there at that forum to start putting this information out. And it will get easier when every state gets its own board. We'll start working on that really, really soon because I think it's going to be pretty easy to say, well, at least these 30 states, you might as well set up their board because they're not going to be on the naughty list and we'll figure out the threshold later. And these five definitely are, so we might as well set up their uh, goodbye boards and then we'll figure out how to fill the rest in. These types of connections need to be made between the individuals, not just with me. Okay. Anyway, um, this is what I want to see. I want to see people reaching out saying, hey, look, here's an opportunity right here. Come get it. Come on. Bring it on. Because here's the thing. Most of those positions that they're having trouble filling are going to be people that come from another place. And then some of the people that push back on this and say, well, if too many people from California move to Arizona, they'll screw it up. Not if the right mindset of people moves to Arizona. They won't screw it up. 
And I'll tell you what, if you're part of the Walking to Freedom movement and you're part of the TSP community, you're probably not moving in to tell someone else how to live their life. So this migration is happening. Actually getting your hands around it with Walking to Freedom will kind of help people pick the right place for them. Because some people are going to go, I don't care what kind of job I can get from in Arizona. It's not for me. It's not where I want to live. That's great. Find a place that is where you want to live. Anyway, great call for a leadoff call on a Friday. Hey, a new job pays well with a growing, expanding company that pays bonuses. <laughs> Only a TSP, right? That's not your typical survivalist thing. But, hey, last time I checked, we all need some money, and a job is how a lot of us get it. So let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. I'm hoping you can help me figure out what went wrong. I bought some uh, big box of raisins and then put them in the mason jars and then vacuum sealed the mason jars with my food saver and the little uh, vacuum sealing attachment. And I left it on the shelf for, I don't know, six months or so, something like that. And when I opened it up, there was a real pop, like there had been pressure inside the jar. And the raisins were funky. I mean, they had started, it looked like they had started to ferment. So well, did I just get a bad batch of raisins or should I not vacuum seal raisins? What do you think went wrong here? Thanks a lot. Yeah, this is the easy, quick answer. Don't do that. Um, uh, when you are doing a vacuum seal, you should not be doing anything you would call a wet food, anything with a significant moisture content. So even though a raisin is uh, is fairly uh, dehydrated, it's not fully dehydrated. Raisins are quite wet. If you can take something between your fingers and mash it and get moisture out of it on your fingers, it's definitely too wet for dry canning, which is basically what vacuum sealing in a, in a jar really is. And what you got there was what's called anaerobic fermentation. And it sounds like instead of having a seal when you got done, you had a, a, a you said a pop. So you had ga gas off of there. The, the, the gas expanded. It took a vacuum and turned it into a, a positive pressure environment. And it sounds like only the ring held the... Uh, The lid on. That's, that's kind of interesting. I've actually never seen that happen, but I've never tried to dry can a raisin before, and, and you shouldn't do it. There are certain things that drying them will preserve them, but they're better off left in an open environment than a closed environment. What she did is twofold. Um, number one, you've got a raisin, which we all know what a raisin is. It's a grape, right? So, An interesting experiment and something your kids would have fun with to stick a couple big marshmallows in a jar and vacuum seal the jar. And you, the marshmallows will flatten. I mean, you'll just like almost do nothing. And then you open the jar, as long as you do it within a reasonable amount of time, they pop right back up. You've pulled the air out of the marshmallows like a pillow, right? Like just like shoving a pillow flat, it'll reinflate itself when you bring it out of a vacuum environment. You can clean pillows that way, guys. Um, let's say you wanted to clean your pillows. To clean your pillowcase, you throw in a washing machine. To clean your pillow, take a big contractor trash bag, and uh, this is like to get all the dust and skin from the dust mites and stuff that, that accumulates where we sleep out. Put it in the trash bag, take a good vacuum, and uh, just a regular vacuum cleaner, and, and put it in the bag, and seal your hand around the bag, and turn the vacuum on. And the bag will just scrunch down really, really tight. Then open it, and then vacuum the outside of the pillow. Susie Homemaker tip on a survival show. This is a good uh, sanitation issue, though, which is part of survivalism. And it's demonstrating kind of what went on with the raisins. So you aggravate an already poor circumstance, is what I'm trying to say. Inside the raisins, you had moisture. As you vacuum sealed them and put them into a negative pressure environment, the moisture within the raisin on the inside of the dry skin was literally pulled through the per permeable barrier that is the skin. 
Okay, so now you've got the moisture that's normally held inside the skin touching the outside of the skin. And then you've got wild yeasts that are going to be part of any fruit or vegetable out there. So now you've got the moisture and the wild yeast coming together in an, in an oxygen-deprived environment, and you get the only thing that you can get in that situation, which is an anaerobic or without oxygen fermentation or a low-oxygen fermentation. So things like dehydrated, uh, like prunes, raisins, some of like the mango stuff and apricots and stuff like that really shouldn't be put into that type of an environment. Vacuum sealing is generally for fully dried, fully dehydrated things to extend their shelf life. Um, and if you try to do it with certain other things, this is an, and it's specifically a natural food. Uh, we've dry canned things like for just snack foods and, and for like treats, uh, or for really good barter implements. <laughs> Things like candy, like Swedish fish and stuff like that, they don't suffer from this problem. It's natural fruits specifically that are subject to, to fermentation that you'll have this problem with. So there's a homemaking tip, a, a science lesson, and a food storage tip all in one simple call on ruined raisins. Uh, by the way, get rid of those. You really don't want to, uh, to consume them at all. That's probably a bad idea. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John in Indiana, and I have a question as it relates to sort of the care of seedlings I'm starting indoors for my garden. And the question specifically is, um, would seedlings started indoors, primarily tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers, benefit from the addition of any sort of organic fertilizer, I'm assuming in a, in a diluted form, as they're in these seed trays prior to transplant? Or simply is just, you know, soil that I've added, the potting soil, and then um, water uh, that I would add occasionally. Is that is that sufficient, or do I need to think about adding a fertilizer? And exactly how would I do that, that these, you know, young, more tender plants would uh, would make it through? So any advice you have uh, on that topic would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Bye. Like many questions in gardening, farming, permaculture, agriculture, you'll get different answers based on who you ask. This is the standard answer, which I partly agree with. Don't fertilize seedlings because it will encourage them to build stronger root systems, which is one of the most important components of survival, thriving, and establishment of the seedling when you transplant it out into the real world. And the reason that it makes them develop better roots to not give them a lot of extra fertility is because there's only so much there, so that little seedling thing that they're in, the little pot or whatever it is you're starting them in, they have to kind of like shove a root into every part of it, like, where is it? I need it. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. So they get hungry so they put out a lot of roots so that when you pull that seedling out of its little seed starter tray you're looking at a massive root system at least as massive as would fit in there you almost go where'd the dirt go that's when you pull a seedling out of a seed starter and like half the dirt just falls off it like some of the times when you get them from some of the box stores that's not a healthy root system it's probably not why it's that way it's probably because those a lot of those stores don't do a good job of taking care of those plants and they go through a lot of stress and transport um, so that's the, the conventional reasoning. That being said, though, when you go out and you buy any kind of a mix, a, a, a potting soil mix, a seed starter mix, there's generally organic matter compost as a component of that. 
So that means there's fertility there. It's not like you're starting these seeds and establishing them in a sterile environment with no fertility at all. That would be actually impossible to do. So the conventional wisdom in the seed starting world is to try to give a balance of fertility uh, and an even mixture so that the roots will seek out the fertility and well establish themselves prior to transplant. My experience has been that it doesn't really matter. That if you actually, and especially once the seedling is kind of up, it's got its maybe second set of true leaves and all, give it some fertility, it's just as likely to develop a good root system as if you don't. Because it only needs so much at that size and its rate of growth at that point. Where I differ is what I love to do is give a foliar feed, which would be like uh, Garrett juice um, or organic miracle Grow liquid or something like that, about two or three days before transplant into the, into the wild, so to speak. And I like to do that at about two or three days and then the day before. Here's why. What I'm trying to do is give that plant kind of a boost, kind of a like... Uh, you know, getting it ready for a fight, like if, you know, where you give it a good, good protein shake, uh, you know, and a good workout the day before it goes into the ring, like that type of a thing. I want that plant as healthy as possible. I want it because it's going to go through some level of shock. So, but I do generally, when I do that, use a half strength mixture. So if it, if the, the product I'm using calls for, let's say, an ounce to a gallon of water, then I would cut it back to a half ounce to a gallon. Not because the seedling really can't handle it, but because of the constricted environment the seedling's in, there's no dissipation. So it's not really even going to hurt it. Right? If you use the recommended amount and it's a good, healthy, established seedling, it's not going to burn it up or anything like that. But you're basically going to waste your product because only so much of it can be used and it's not dissipating in the soil. It's being directly applied. So it's just not necessary, and it makes your product last longer and cost less money. But that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm putting that plant into training. So I like, you know, I try to establish my seedlings if I can outdoors, not even in a greenhouse. I've got all the stuff I've got started right now sitting on a picnic table in a shady area in the backyard. But as those plants come into enough maturity to handle transplant, they'll get that kind of uh, steroid shot, if you want to call it that, before they get transplanted. That's my take on it. I think as long as you use a good potting soil, though, and you give your seedlings the right environment, and you give them at least some transition so they don't go from a perfect greenhouse directly into full sun, hot days, cold nights in the middle of your garden without any kind of a hardening, you, you really can't mess it up. You, you really can't. More people are going to mess it up because they don't give the seedlings enough light. So if you get really, like, your seedlings come up and they grow, like, super fast, like, two, three inches long and then fall over, they didn't get enough light. That's always what's happened. Or they get too much water and you don't have enough drainage. Those are the two things that your seeds either rot in the ground, they get a fungal infection, not a good fungus infusion, but a fungal infection. Uh, they're too cold. They're too hot. They're too dry. They don't get enough light. That's what kills seedlings. It's almost never... You didn't have enough or you had too much fertility in, in your mix unless you're being like completely nuts crazy and planting them directly into compost and manure. That's probably not going to work really well. All right, let's take another call. Jack, Brent in Prince Edward Island. Can you use stone dust as effective as, say, glacial rock dust or azomite? I've been looking at John Kohler's uh, YouTube videos on azomite or stone dust for mineral supplementation in a garden, and I cannot find it in Canada. So I was wondering if ordinary stone dust or, uh, would be uh, a perfect uh, substitute. Thanks. Bye. 
Um, Brent, uh, I'm not sure. It depends on the product and what it is and where it came from and what its mineral content is and does it have anything that you don't want in it. So um, before I would put an amendment like a, and see stone dust just to me, I don't really know how that differs from rock dust. I, I, I don't really know where what's what constitutes being stone and, and mostly what I've heard of from stone dust is like an an, an additive to increase um the rigidity in a concrete product or as part of an underpinning for a sidewalk or something like that uh in a, in, a, in a, instead of decomposed granite because it'll com I I really don't know is the answer so I would want to see a mineral Uh, and con composition analysis of the product and say, do I or do I not want this on, on my property? And the answer is it's probably fine. But without knowing exactly what the source is and what its intended use is, I don't know how it's been handled or what it might have been treated with because this is my concern. If the product that you're getting is primarily designed for construction, uh, which it may be, then they wouldn't worry about washing it with a chemical that you might not really want on your property. So that would be my concern. If it's stone dust being sold by a, a company that you know sells other organic-style products and things like that, it's specifically for mineral enrichment of your soil, I would say that it would be probably perfectly fine. Some, uh, I mean, I, I think that the the products that I find to be the two best ones for mineral enhancement, though, are green sand and lava sand. And they both have advantages and benefits beyond just the mineralization components. Lava sand in particular not only has all these great minerals and things going on with it, but it also has an absorbency factor and helps improve the moisture retention capabilities uh, of soil. Uh, green sand has a tremendous amount of advantage going for it. And it also, due to its particle size, helps soils to be more friable and, and tillable. And when I say tillable, I don't mean for your roller tiller. I mean for, mean for all the little creatures down there that do all the tilling for you if you leave soil alone. So in anybody asking this question, that's what I would say. What is this product made? What kind of stone? Uh, where was it produced? How was it produced? What was its intended purpose when it was produced? And how was it processed during its production? Again, was it washed with an acid? Uh, if it was washed with an acid, it depends on what kind. Was it basically a vinegar acid that might actually help make the minerals more available? Or is it like an industrial acid because this stuff's supposed to be part of a concrete structure or part of a concrete underlayment? That's, that's what I'd want to know. Um, but it would, it would shock me if you would have the inability to get a hold of green sand or lava sand, even in Prince Edward Island where you're at, um, or even to, to maybe order some of it. And I would be more comfortable with that recommendation because I know that you're going to be okay there. Um, but again, if it's a product made for what you want to do, as long as you can trace back where it comes from and you know that it, it's not like, well, yeah, they say this is for agricultural use, but it comes from, I, you know, they, they, it's, it's, it's washed stones from the gold mining industry that they use this, you know, harsh acid on and then it's pulverized and some of it goes to, to make sidewalks and some of it goes to, you know, gardeners who are going to destroy their fields and don't know it. Uh, as long as it's not that, it's, it's probably fine. There's a lot of ways that you could probably get some good mineral content into your soil, though you're on an island. There's probably a beach. Take a bucket, go to the beach, bring some sand back. It's ocean sand. It's got lots of minerals in it. It's got 
bukus of minerals in it. Sift it on like a light sugar coating and, you know, it's not tilling when you only work like the first inch of soil, folks. And, and, and let nature take its course from there. Get yourself a whole bunch of crushed up shells and spread that out in your, I mean, those are two probably local resources that you could bring in a lot of calcium and other minerals. Uh, with it wouldn't be a problem. So that would be another suggestion I would have for you, or frankly anybody that lives in a coastal area. Um, and you don't want to overdo it. There's some salt residue, right? And but sodium's a mineral too. Okay, but there's some salt residue in in beach sand, obviously. But what, again, what we're talking about is if you were if you were a person that eats too much salt, a coating like that across your entire bed once a year. Uh, is going to not bring anywhere new, near too much sodium. It's going to bring a lot of mineral content in. And, and it'll also just start, as long as you get minerals into a system, you get fungus going, you get animals going, sooner or later the system starts to extract. There's minerals everywhere. It's not like, it's not like there's no minerals left. The soil is what's been demineralized. The subsoil and subsurface rock are full of minerals. What's happened to our fields is due to over-fertilization and not taking care of them and excessive irrigation cycles and monocropping is the minerals not only have been depleted from the soil, the mechanisms by which nature mines the minerals and brings them up into the soil have been degenerated as well. You start getting docks and dandelions and things with long tap roots to get some animals into a system and give it a little bit of a kickstart with some amendments And you start to get the remineralization process going on by itself. You don't necessarily have to bring it in because it's there. You just have to get a system built that's going to go down and get it, bring it up, and make it bioavailable to the other plants that can't get down to that level. And from what I know of what you're doing, you're probably well onto your way with that. But some green sand or lava sand mixed in your beds would maybe be the boost you're looking for. This stone dust, again, if you can verify its source and how it was treated and you know that it's safe, I wouldn't see any problem with it at all. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Joe from Kansas again. Uh, I wanted to tell you thank you for everything you've done. Um, I just found your Zello channel for your uh, podcast, and it's pretty amazing. It's ridiculous, the spectrum of people on there. You've got, like, the super tinfoil hat guys, and then you've got, like, your super sheltered, uh, like, homeschooled, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Anyways, I want to say is I, I, I send in a lot of calls to you on here because I'm one part trying to contribute to your show because I really do care about it and I listen to it a lot. I mean, like every day. And the other thing is, I mean, I'm not going to be stupid here. I, you got like 65,000 listeners. I guess I, I do get excited when I hear my own voice on your show. Um, I'll try and, I'm trying to come up with good questions, but I haven't really come up with many lately. <laughs> Just a whole lot of bad luck here. But uh, anyways, Jack, seriously, I, I'm amazed at uh, how you're able to see through so much nonsense and find, like, the right, or at least, I don't know. Thank you, I guess. Thank you so much. And I'm eating up your six cents a minute here, so... I will shut up and stop calling in unless I have a decent question. Uh, please keep up what you're doing because it seriously matters a lot to me. Take care, Jack. 
Well, thank you for the kind words, and I, you know, I, I just hope that anybody that wants to call in just calls in, and don't worry about my six cents a minute. It's a business expense we have it there. It'd be nice if some people didn't call seven times to ask one question because they didn't know what they were going to ask the first time, and that's really not the thirty-five cents or whatever it might have cost me from call and hang up, call and hang up. But just it would make it easier for me to screen the call without having to go through all that. Um, and don't worry, your questions aren't good enough. And don't think because you asked a question and it didn't get on the show that it wasn't a good question. I may not have gotten to it. Once I get far enough back, I just kind of skip ahead. So, you know, call and re-ask a question if you think it was a good one. And then the other thing, I always say it at the beginning of these shows, but, you know, I thought this was a good opportunity to reiterate it here. When you want to call in with a question, Write your question down, type it in your computer, whatever, but get it into a question. Get it into a question takes one to two sentences maximum to ask. Details can then follow the question. If you call in, especially to a place where there's no one as a sounding board, you call in, you get, you know, you've reached the survival podcast, you know, question line, blah, 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 me talking, and it says beep, and you start giving details. Um, you, you can run away and lose sight of what you called for, and that does happen to people. Where if you call up and go, Jack, my question is, how do I grow a food forest uh, in central Pennsylvania when I only have a 20th of an acre to work with? What would be good practices for that? Here's more on that, right? You know, our growing season is this. My family really likes it. And, and it just goes so easy. So I wanted to take an opportunity to say that. The, the real reason I played this one, though, was the comments on the Zello channel and the, the diversity and the variety. That's a direct reflection of the diversity and the variety of thought within this audience. And it's because, with a few exceptions, um, the common ideal of the survival podcast isn't, oh, oh God, what if the shit hits the fan? And it's not even how do we grow our own food. It's not even, you know, I don't know, any of the things that normally I think people would associate with the political connotations or the lifestyle connotations of the word survival. The commonality is liberty. And there's a very small segment of actively uh, vocal members of this audience that are decidedly anti-liberty. I, I and, and I, I always wonder. I mean, they're welcome here. Maybe it'll rub off on them eventually. I just don't get it. I don't get how someone is part of this community when they just you could tell they hate liberty. They just they, they want their liberty, but they don't want other people to have it. And that's that's not how liberty works. Liberty isn't where you get everything you want. And then everybody else has to just suck it up and take it your way because your way's right. That presumes that you know the best way for another person to live. And I don't care if your justification is economic, political, intellectual, religious. I don't care what it is. There is no man or woman out there that should be telling other men and women how they are required to live. Advising them, informing them, suggesting, and enabling them when they ask for your help is fine. Telling them you will do it because I said so, and gee, since I'm not big enough to do it, I'll put politicians in who will use the force of the state to make you do it. That's as anti-liberty as it gets. And I think that the majority of this audience, despite their personal viewpoints on the way things would be, 
believe in that ideal, whether they call themselves it or not, there's a libertarian component to who and what they are. They may be very, very religious. They may believe certain things because of that, but they're willing to allow other people the freedom to not be. Or they may have a certain viewpoint about the right way to economically run things, but yet they don't want to take and control other people's money to get it done. And then all of a sudden you find people that you would think would never get along getting along and contributing to each other due to the fact that they have this one common ideal. We all should have the freedom to be ourselves. That's what I've tried to build the show around. And I want to help the caller a little bit here. Don't anybody get on this guy for his use of the term homeschool in that context. He was flustered. He was all over the place. He didn't know how to explain what he was trying to explain. And that's something else I want to put. Don't take things so freaking personal. We've got people that are ultra-sensitive on all sides of every issue anymore. Not everybody who says clip when they mean magazine is anti-gun. Not everybody that says bullet when they should have said cartridge is anti-gun. Um, some people definitely are, and they go deeper in showing their ignorance. Like the Colorado Democrat that I put on the air, or uh, not on the air, on Facebook yesterday, who doesn't know that magazines could be reloaded. She thinks they're restricting high-capacity magazines, okay, We'll, we'll eventually get rid of them all because they're, this is her words, they're bullets, they're ammunition, and as the people shoot them, they'll be gone. This is how stupid people, and I'm going to save some of that for the gun question that's coming soon, um, but how stupid some people are in that world. That doesn't mean that everybody that uses a term the wrong way is against you. For, you know, we had a lot of discussion about gay marriage lately, and let me tell you why. Because the Supreme Court decision is going to come down, and either way it goes, it's going to distract everybody involved from what's really important while everybody bitches about it. Like, oh, I don't know, Whole Foods now getting into Monsanto's bed. How about that, right? So that's going on while this is, it's going to be a distraction. It's going to be a complete and total distraction. That's why I've even brought it up lately. Because I truly believe it's not my business what you do as long as what you do doesn't infringe upon my liberty. Whether I think it's right or wrong morally doesn't give me the right to go in and legislate it if there is no victim to what I might consider a crime. And I don't. You guys know that. I'm just saying that's how we all have to start thinking. That's And, and as we get into these debates like this, okay, we become of the opinion... That anybody that would stand up, let's say, from the uh, the contrarian side of the, the debate over gay marriage and say, I'm opposed to it. I don't think two people that are of the same sex should be cohabitating, getting married, doing any of this stuff. Doesn't necessarily mean that person wants to legislate it. And if you are the person on the other side of that debate, you should be completely okay with that person's opinion as long as they don't want to use the force of the state to force it on you. That person's got a right to that opinion. And a person on the other side of that debate that says it should all be allowed, you on the other side of the debate need to be okay with their opinion too. Opinions are fine. There's been a lot of discussion lately about opinions on the blog. You don't want my opinion. I want your opinion. Opinion, 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 opinion. Opinions are fine. Enforcement of them is where I draw the line. I think, I think the majority of this audience generally agrees. And even the ones that don't over certain opinions do on many of the others. All I would ask, given that this all came together to give me this opportunity to ask you this, is that if you have that view in 10 other things in your life, 
and you have a completely different view in one, and that one fits certain criteria, i.e., it doesn't directly affect you, examine it deeper and see if you can make peace with people on the other side of that debate because that's how libertarianism works. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Bill from Arlington, Texas. I was listening to one of your, your podcasts here and it brought up a, a question of uh, the availability of guns and ammo longer range. I'm not sure that I understand exactly where we are right now, and I don't know if anybody really can, but I'd be real interested in your comments of uh, where you see the the rest of this uh, push to eliminate guns and ammo uh, uh, going. I don't know where our current status is right now, and uh, maybe you've got your hand on the, our pulse uh, of the whole thing a lot better than most of us do out here uh, who don't have all the sources that you do. I'd just be real interested in your comments about the Availability of uh, guns and ammo going forward. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Where are we at on gun bans? What's what's going on with that? Um, it, it's a very interesting question, and I, I'm going to give you two sides of it. Let's start out with the federal level, what the Senate and the, the House of Representatives are going to do in regard to restricting gun rights over at least the next year and a half, two years. And the answer is almost nothing. They, they might get something squeezed through. They might squeeze, squeeze something through on uh, strengthening background checks or going to universal background checks uh, and, and, and actually make the system that's there a little bit more strict and a little bit more tied together because that you can sell to a lot of Republicans. Um, but as far as banning or restricting anything at the federal level, uh, it ain't getting through. Um, it ain't going to happen. There aren't enough votes to do it, and it's not going to change, and they're not going to get it done. And they know they're not going to get it done. So this is what I said in the beginning with the Feinstein bill. That Feinstein bill is a giant distraction. It's the most onerous pile of shit you will ever find against firearm owners that exists in America today, and it is there for that reason, to be a magnet, to, att to attract your anger. And then to be a model for states where people are stupid enough to think it's a good idea. At least the majority, 51% of the people in the state that vote or have voted in the past uh, think it's a good idea. And this is why you see gun bans and gun restrictive legislations happening in Connecticut, happening in Colorado, happening in Maryland, happening in New York, and in proposals in other very, very, and I'm not going to even call them liberal because that word has been destroyed, progressive states, states that do not believe in individual liberty and freedom and that the rights of the Constitution are actually protected rights not to be infringed with. Those places are test beds for this line of crap and bullshit thinking. And it is part, not all, but it is part of why some people are leaving those states. So the danger right now is at the state level. And it's interesting because we did this before, Heller, D.C., And it's interesting because we could end up at a point where a state goes to a point where that legislation is challenged and ends up back in front of the Supreme Court. And remember, last time this took almost 20 years to play out, and the court could be decidedly more liberal, progressive, right, or decidedly more conservative by the time it works its way through. It's a gamble. Because once you get a Supreme Court decision on something, it's a game changer for a long damn time. Getting the Supreme Court to, to overturn its own decisions is, uh, is, is, is something that's happened once or twice in the history of the entire country. 
It, it, it is once or twice in the history of the country has a Supreme Court issued a decision contrary to a prior decision by a prior version of the same court. Uh, I can think of one off the top of my head. There's probably two or three. And uh, the one I can think of involves the issue with slavery and Fugitive Slave Act. So that was, you know, an issue that, gee, yeah, you got it wrong, okay? Um, so, so that's the reality. Now, before I move on with more on the thoughts on the gun thing, I want to point something out that I don't think most people with the gay marriage debate understand. I think that there's enough conservatives on the Supreme Court still that if nobody makes a major shift in the way that they would tend to vote, that that case will lose and gay marriage bans will stand. And I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I think it's going to happen. But I think that the, the liberals on the, or progressives, yeah, it's so easy to fall into that trap, on the Supreme Court got led, led into a trap. Um, enough of the justices voted to hear the case. And I think now that the liberal leaning judges are like, maybe we shouldn't even take this case right now because they know what happens if the case comes down ruled the other way. And that's just an example of how politics get played even in the Supreme Court. Uh, I could probably find you an article on that. I'll dig for one today, but I think that's what happened. I think that uh, a trap was laid. Uh, yeah, we'll take the case. And, and now they're going to lose the case. And I think everybody knew that going in, uh, except the people that were going to vote, you know, the other way. So it's interesting that politics get played even in the Supreme Court. Uh, I bring that up too, because this issue with guns is going to end up in front of the Supreme Court. And one of the things I've seen discussed in the media that should not even be discussed when it comes to the Supreme Court case is public opinion. Uh, I've heard a lot of newscasters saying that, well, public opinion now is in support of this, and but only by a little bit, but it's way different than it was, and how is that going to influence the court's decision? Public opinion should not influence the Supreme Court's decision 1%, not even a half of a percent, not even a quarter of a percent. The only question the Supreme Court should be asking itself is, is this legal and constitutional or not? And that's important that we know that that's not how it's always done. Because if it was, Obamacare would have not gotten past the Supreme Court. But yet it did, because politics played into it. And that's the danger with gun legislation in front of the Supreme Court. Which way are the politics blowing at the time that it gets there? Because even the people that say they are diehard one way or the other... The, the problem with Supreme Court justices is that they're very concerned about their legacies. How will history remember them? When we got sold out uh, by Justice Roberts during the Obamacare thing, uh, it was stated that in the end he didn't want to be the person that destroyed it. Maybe he should have paid attention to his you know, constitutional bearings a little bit more. And that's one of the big concerns I have with gun legislation in the court. If I believe that the court would follow its own handbook, which is the Constitution of the United States of America, I would want every single gun law in America challenged in front of the Supreme Court today because I know they would be striking them down left and right. I don't trust the court to do that anymore, even when the person on the court says they're a quote-unquote conservative. So that's one of our bigger issues that we have here is this entire mess with a, a court system that no longer follows its own employee handbook, coupled with a Congress that no longer follows its employee handbook, and a, coupled with a president that no longer follows his employee handbook. And to all the ass clowns in all three branches of government, let me explain something to you. You have the same employee handbook, the Constitution of the United States of America. So 
there's enough of a remnant of that left, as bad as the system is, that we have kind of drawn a line with gun control at the federal level to hither thou shalt come and no further for now. Okay, So now it's been going on in the state level, and that's where we're at with the biggest concerns. For many people that live in states that aren't stupid and don't do this crap, eventually the ammo shortage issue and the magazine issue and the gun issue, you're going to get a glut as people from the states that are there decide to comply with the unconstitutional law and either sell their guns, stop buying them, and get rid of their high-capacity magazines that are bullets, like this idiot from Colorado said. You know what? i got I got to play this for you. I wasn't planning on playing any news clips in today's show. I really wasn't. I'm going to play this for you. This is the mentality of people that are writing and passing and voting on gun legislation in the state of Colorado. This is somebody that's been reelected many times. This person's IQ cannot have three digits in it. There's, there's, there's no way this person has an IQ over 100. It's impossible. If they do, whoever gave the test is wrong. Listen to this. A Colorado uh, state, it's either state senator, state congressional, I think it's Colorado state congresswoman, talking about how banning high-capacity magazines will result in less violent crime in the future. Just listen to this. Issues around mental health and, and other issues. So I do think that we can pass those. And, and just br- very briefly, to your last question, what's the efficacy of, pa- of banning these magazine clips? I will tell you, these, these, this is, these are um, ammunition. They're bullets. So the people who have those now, they're going to shoot them. And so if you ban, if you ban them in the future, the number of these high-capacity magazines is going to decrease dramatically over time because the bullets will have been shot and there won't be any more available. Sheriff Smith, you'd like to respond. Well, right now, there's enough political will in the people of the country that there's no way that enough people as dumb as the woman you just heard can get elected to federal office. That's what's slowing down the federal progression of gun legislation right now. That's it. Unfortunately, at the state level, imbeciles like that can get elected. And that's why your bigger fight now is in the states that are leaning toward the progressive agenda uh, at the highest rates. And that's why those states are the battlegrounds now for Second Amendment freedom. Let's take another call. Hey, Chad, John from New Hampshire. Uh, just listening to your last call-in show on, uh, I don't remember, on Friday. And uh, we are talking about bringing in uh, pesticides, herbicides, with the uh, manure that you buy in. I was wondering if you could go a little deeper into that as far as, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, birds, we have ducks up here, and uh, I feed them a blue seal feed that probably most likely comes from some kind of a soy, you know, GMO kind of grain. Um, so if I'm feeding my ducks that, and then they're, uh, you know, producing manure, and the same thing with my rabbits, um, am I doing the, essentially the same thing you're talking about with that cow manure? And what would be the best way around that? Uh, other than producing my own feed crops and uh, maybe searching out a non-GMO source or, or an organic feed that's uh, a through-the-roof kind of price. So any advice would be appreciated, and if you could elaborate on bringing those uh, pests or herbicides in by accident a little more and uh, what your standards are now, that would be great. Thanks. Bye. 
Is there reason for concern? Yes. Is it as high as the concern I would have uh, bringing in uh, manure from feedlots and the like? No. And here's why, and the rabbits give me actually the biggest concern for you. When you look at poultry feed, Generally speaking, the feed is made up of mostly the grain. Okay, so the grain um, is uh, is is going to have less of the offending uh, hormone-based herbicide in it than the vegetation. When we start feeding cattle, they feed them lots of grain, but they'll also make a bunch of silage and things like that, and a lot of the vegetative matter will go in, and the cattle are fed hay, and a lot of the hay that they're fed comes from fields that have been sprayed with this crap and things like that. So that is a huge source, then, of the problem with cattle manure and horse manure. They generally cause... More problems with this. You don't generally hear about a person using a, let's say, a, a fertilizer that's primarily design, derived from poultry droppings, ending up with these symptoms that your plants start to look like the leaves curl, they burn, they turn bad colors, uh, and it has all these problems. It's usually in large amounts. The other thing is, it's not the manure that's the only source of these problems in this contaminated compost. A lot of the compost today that's being made is being made from the agricultural waste and lawn waste that is being sprayed heavily with this stuff. So it's it's kind of a three a trifecta. Okay, so we've got cattle being hay fed on things that have uh, Amelia penetate in it, or this latest one that I can't even pronounce. Uh, these long term persistent herbicides. People that have lawn care services taking away their grass clippings because, God forbid, they break down on their lawn, right? Um, and, and, and constantly being treated with these same types of herbicides. And the animals consuming the agricultural silage and higher levels of it passing through in the manure. And then composting facilities taking all of these things back together and, and composting them together in this toxic soup. A small amount of these toxins in a large amount of compostables will actually render them fairly inert. It's when they're getting this massive amount of them in there, there's enough residual through to do damage for a very long time where you put it. So the chickens and ducks are probably eating a, a diet that's made mostly of corn and soy. It probably is GMO. It would probably be better if you didn't do that. But you can look around, and just with anecdotal evidence, you can see that there's tremendous numbers of people feeding their chickens and, and ducks and things, stuff like this, using their manure and not having these problems. Whereas when they bring in this industrial compost, we get lots of anecdotal evidence of the problem. Okay, So that's, that's something to be a little bit less concerned about. The reason I'm worried a little bit more about the rabbits is a lot of times you're getting into alfalfa and things like that, and they're they're moving more and more toward genetic engineering there and spraying this crap. And basically, you've got a little baby cow in a in a rabbit that actually does less digestion than a cow. They don't have the rumination that a cow does, and they actually break down what they eat less than a cow, which means they have the ability to pass through even more, which is a damn shame because your rabbit manure is just an excellent source of fertility that's not even what's considered a hot manure. So I, I you know that's a place where I would even be more concerned about the source of my feed. The thing is, 
that, you know, rabbits do really good on, you know, alfalfa and Timothy hay and stuff like that. And it's probably the case that you could, you know, instead of feeding so much, uh, the, you know, pellets and stuff like that, move to a more true rabbit diet for them. And you can probably just about anywhere in this country find a source Uh, of you know of of good quality uh, hay for rabbits to make up a, a part of their diet anyway that you know the source and you know it's not contaminated uh, and you can grow them some of their own things and this is the thing like we have to ex accept that we live in the real world today and it'd be great if you could feed all of your animals 100% certified organic stuff to know that there was no herbicide residue there and that's difficult to pull off. It's getting less expensive. There's more and more options in uh, organic, herbicide-free animal feeds, and I think there'll be more and more. There's more and more desire to it. So one thing you could do instantly that would help you without killing you is to put your animals on a diet of 50% organic, 50% conventional feed. That's not going to up the feed bill that much, but it will reduce the potential contamination, which is already fairly low for the types of animals and feed you're working with, by half, which is a hell of a lot more. If you can then begin to produce things for them uh, as well, you'll do even better. The ducks can forage for a lot of what they need, chickens as well. Rabbits can even be tractored. Um, this is an interesting thing I've learned with my experience with my chickens so far. So we have a hanging feeder that holds about seven pounds of feed, and we have 17 birds, and they're about half, three-quarter, let's say somewhere between one-quarter and one-half grown right now. They're out for about 12, 11, 12, 13 hours a day now in their little tractor that I built for them. I only move it, some days I move it once, some days I leave them in that spot. depends on how much stuff's there. Uh, we're still waiting on a raven tractor, so the grass is pretty high. So I've pretty much left them all day in this area that's about four feet by seven and a half feet long. And at the end of the day, they'll have eaten 20% of the feed in the feeder. Overnight, they go in their brooder. They'll eat almost all the feed overnight. When they're given the choice between you know natural seeds, insects, vegetation, etc., their feed level goes way, way down. So anything you can get the, the animals into the ecosystem with is going to increase their feed and reduce, reduce their feed requirement. So now we're feeding a 50-50 mix, organic, conventional, and we're getting 50% of the diet maybe from the land and grow them things. I mean, there's a lot of things that are easy to grow that you can feed to chickens that take a lot of work to feed to people and very little work to feed to chickens. If you grow amaranth for chickens, you cut the tops off, you let them dry, you stick them in a bag. You don't even de-seed them. You throw the whole head out, and they eat it. If you grow sunflowers for chickens, once the sunflower loses its petals, you cut the top off, you let it dry out, you throw the whole head to a chicken. If you grow millet for chickens, you don't even really have to cut it. You just put them where the millet is when it's got seed heads on it. They'll take it from there. So there's a lot like that we can do. With rabbits, I would say plant lamb's quarters. They love it. It's high in protein. They get both a seed yield that they'll eat like a grain. If you put a, a lamb's quarter... Uh, piece in with a rabbit that's got the seed head on it, they'll eat the whole damn thing. And there's tons of protein in those lamb quarter seeds. If you throw that same lamb's quarter uh, with the seed head on it into your chickens, they'll they'll hammer those little bitty seeds. They'll eat the vegetation. So you've got to kind of take this combined approach because I agree, if you have a significant flock and a significant number of rabbits, it can get quite expensive, but there's ways to vary their feed. And then we have to stop thinking the way that conventional ag does. So what I mean by that is 
As soon as I say start feeding your rabbits more, Timothy grass and, and, and alfalfa hay and stuff like that, and instead of you know rabbit pellets that have a controlled protein requirement, the people that do this for a living start going, oh, God, no, you're going to slow the growth rate down. you, you got to get the fryer rabbit from his little baby rabbit bunny size up to a certain size for harvest in a certain amount of time where you start to go into a feed cost deficit and what have you. And if they're eating all of this stuff on pasture, then they're not eating the high protein. Their growth rate slows. I don't care. If it takes me 20 days longer to produce a rabbit that's better quality for meat use, I'll do it. And I don't have any problems with it. If it takes me another 15 days to get a chicken up to broiler size, I'll do it. Um, in fact, I don't want rapid growth. I don't want fast growth. I will not raise uh, the hybrid uh, Cornish rock crosses. Uh, I won't do it. I will not raise a chicken that I have to kill by a certain time because it looks at me and goes, please kill me. I will not raise a chicken that eventually grows so fast that it will break its leg under its own weight. I understand why people use them for commercial production. They're not genetically modified chickens. They're just a hybrid variety. And I, I get it. And I wouldn't refuse to eat one, but I'm not going to raise it. I don't have the need for the level of production that requires me to do that. I know that a chicken like a Buff Orpington or a Rhode Island Red is going to take me 60 days to raise the broiler size. I have plenty of time to raise them to broiler size. I don't need that many a year. They're for our use at home. So one of the things that can help us with not stressing out so much about using alternative feeds is to understand that there's a natural, like a chicken is not supposed to grow as fast as it does even a, a conventional breed that when it's fed a 100% diet that's designed to make it grow fast. It's not supposed to grow that, it's not designed to go that way. We've pushed the natural envelope here. And if we're willing to take a little bit of a step back and let our animals grow at natural growth rates, they'll do pretty well on their own uh, as far as with being able to forage and get things. We'll still have the supplemental feed, especially in northern climates, but we can reduce that, and then we can take what we provide and we can cut it in half. And before you write off natural, herbicide-free, organic, whatever you want to call it, feeds as being ridiculously expensive – Check into as many places as you can. You might be surprised at some of what you can find. And then there's always creative options. Darby Simpson from Simpson Family Farms does this. He buys grain for his birds um, from people who are making the transition. So he does the whole chicken tractor thing, with, and he does use the hybrid chickens, and that's fine. I don't have anything against that. I'm just saying that I don't do it. As a small producer, it's hard for him to afford certified organic grain. So what he does is when you go from conventional agriculture to organic agriculture, there's a three-year period where even though you're doing everything organically, since the place that the stuff's being grown, okay, was grown inorganically prior to that, you can't call it organic in this transition phase. So he buys feed from farms in the transition phase, which is a great step because you're already heading in the right direction. You're already beginning to reduce these, pro these problems. And if we got more and more growers doing this, what does it do? It incentivizes conventional producers to make the transition because they know they can sell their product not at the same premium, but for a premium during the transition period. So that's another thing you want, might want to look for. I don't know how you find this. Probably a good question for Darby. I don't know if you look for transitional grain producers, transitional feed. The word he used when we interviewed him about it was transitional, but you might want to check into that as well. Farms in the area moving from 
conventional to organic and buying from them during this transition period is another way to reduce possible harmful inputs on your property. Great question. It's not an easy answer, but I'll tell you this. Chicken manure from Purina uh, pellets is going to be less likely to contaminate your garden than a lot of compost facilities are taking in grass clippings from residential communities because those grass clippings, those are probably laced with this crap because everybody that wants a green lawn, the first thing they do is they run out to Lowe's and they buy it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Ray in uh, West Central Florida. My question is... Uh what do I need soup to nuts for a solar uh, generator to power my well pump? Uh, what I'm looking for is uh, the ability to have my submersible well pump powered uh, with solar. I'd like to have some battery storage where I can also use it as an alternate when I'm not using the well and have uh, the home powered, or not the whole entire home, but uh, lighting and in some areas uh, if uh, there was a storm or something like that and I had no power. Uh, obviously, you know, I can't run the air conditioner, uh, a microwave and things of that nature, but a light, maybe a fan, and possibly a TV would be just fine. Anyway, uh, love your show. Uh, thank you very much for doing what you do, and uh, hope to hear your response. Thanks. Um, the question itself is kind of rife with problems. Basically, you're saying, how do I build a solar system uh, that's going to run a very high-draw, high-intensity uh, electrical component uh, on an on-demand basis and do other things with it? And the answer is it's probably cost-prohibitive. It's not that it it couldn't be done, but you you, you just don't want to do it the way you're describing. You don't want to try to build a solar system to run your well and to run your well in conventional means. What we have to do is say to ourselves, self, when I run my well, do I run it all day long, nonstop, for hours and hours at a time? And you'll say back to yourself, no, self, that would be stupid. That would be wasting water, and we don't do that. So then you'll say, okay, so do I really need all of that power for pressure uh, in, in, in an on-demand world, and he answers, well, kind of, because I want to take a shower, and I want to irrigate, and I, I want water pressure to the freaking house. So, yeah, I do. And then yourself says back to you, but not really. You want it for two minutes at a time, 15 minutes for a good long shower, 30 minutes to irrigate. You don't want it all the time. You want it for these short little bursts. So that means that we have an opportunity during the rest period to use less energy to get the same effect if we're smart about it. So if you wanted to build a backup system for your well that used solar energy, uh, I would say build it right from the get-go with the, with the concept that if I need to do it, I can plug a freaking generator in and I can, I can give it a boost when need be. And what you want to do is either by building a tower or using the slope of the land, get yourself a tank somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 gallons and put it up above the place that you want pressure, okay? And then run your well to go up to that tank. Even when it's in the on-demand everyday world and all the power is there and you turn it on, whenever that pressure tank comes down to a certain level, the well kicks in and fills it back up, 
All right. Now we've already started with the first rule, alternative energy. Before we touch anything and bring in a different energy source, let's improve the efficiency of what we have. So now we've created a pressure tank using gravity to do the work. We can do this with a 500-gallon tank built on a tower made out of 4x4s higher than the roof line of our house if we have to. If we have enough slope in the land, we could just put it put a couple hundred feet away up All right, and then pressure down. Now, now we can come in and we can create a, a, a system with a low draw pump that will pump water from the well source to the tank, the pressure tank, using a lot less energy, but it's going to do so moving water at a lot less volume. But it doesn't have to give you the 40 gallons of water you're taking for a shower. It only has to put that 40 gallons back before somebody depletes another 40 gallons. So now that low draw system can run on alternative energy and the system itself can stay topped off using the primary energy source during the time that the energy source remains available. That means when you go off grid, Before you really even need to fire up the generator or have the solar panels doing their job, you've got 500 gallons of water pressure treated from that tank, and you don't have to even worry about the well pump running. And you'll still have 500 gallons of water, and if it's a short-term outage, it's probably going to take you all the way to where you need to go before that well needs to run again. And that means that most times the power goes out, you won't even care about the water, even though you're on a well, because gravity will do the work for you. And you can do all of that without a battery, without a solar panel, without the low-draw pump, without any major modifications. You just need a line that goes from the well to the pressure tank and a line that comes from the pressure tank back in to the input in your home and enough height to give you the pressure that you want. That's the, that's the way you do this. And anything you do beyond that, it comes off of this mentality. Because it's ridiculous when you look at a well pump that's going to draw massive amount of energy to try to run that for any duration on a system that's run on solar panels. The cost is insane. The cost is to be able to do it reliably every day in and out. First of all, you're gonna you're gonna spend a ton of money before you light a light bulb. In addition to that, you, you really are. Um, you're talking about a very large battery bank, a very large inverter. I mean, just looking at a typical well pump. I mean, you're probably looking with a very efficient um, uh, pump uh, at needing an inverter dedicated to it of 3,000 to 3,500 watts, and it better be a damn good inverter that can handle the huge spike requirement and, and then the, uh, the drawing amps over time as the pump continues to run. Um, that's, that's a significant amount of power to dedicate to just getting water out of the ground where there's low-draw pumps that can do the same work over a greater period of time with a hell of a lot less energy. Um, but the first thing I would do if I wanted to put water redundancy in is to put in a pressure tank using the existing system the way that it is because it'll buy you, you know, I mean, if you, if you know you're out of power, um, it'll buy you a week. And, uh, easy. And you can go out and at any time, you even with just a single, uh, uh, hookup so that you set up, set it up so that you can actually run your well off of a portable generator. You can go out there with a good, you know, good quality mid-sized portable generator, fire it up, turn the well on and just go ahead and top up the, the tank. And this is the, this is everybody wants to do everything with solar panels and it'll last forever and it's, you know, sustainable and all. It's only as sustainable as your budget. 
And you're getting into an area of the budget where it's very, very expensive to do this way. But as soon as we change the entire concept and we say, all we need to do is move a small amount of water at a small amount of time up of enough of a grade to create a pressure system that will come back into the property, now we can reduce the energy draw requirements significantly, and we can say we're not just going to throw away power that's already there either. And, and so that's how I would approach it. I I wouldn't even try to make a conventional one, one and a half horsepower, uh, well pump run just off of a, of a solar only powered system. Uh, I, I think that that's probably not the right way to do things. And it is something that I would get somebody that has well experience and alternative energy experience involved with to make sure it was done properly. But that's the overview of the way I would do it. Let's take another one. This is John from Florida. Um, one of the recent call-in shows, uh, one of the listeners asked for a uh, recommendation for a fungal inoculant. Um, I have been using one called Plant Soluble. I believe that's the brand name. And it's a mycorrhizal and bacterial inoculant. Um, just like Jack said, all it seems to do is speed up um, the breakdown of any of the organic matter in the, in the soil. I've noticed that it has definitely helped me reduce watering in the beds that I've tried it uh, versus the control beds, which I didn't do anything to. Um, but really, that's all it does is it speeds up kind of the wood and uh, you know the fungal hyphae uh, growing process. So um, I definitely use it all the time. I definitely recommend it. Check it out, Plant Soluble. It's real cheap. Uh, I put a little scoop in one gallon of water and just dump it on the roots before I plant them. Thanks. How's it going? I, I did look up the product, and I put a link to where you can find it on Amazon.com in today's show notes if you want to take a look at the product he recommended. It doesn't look much less or more expensive than the product that I ha I'm trying right now. They probably all cost about the same because they probably all take about the same amount of effort to produce, and margins generally are affected by the market availability, supply, demand, all that stuff that you know uh, Keynesians say doesn't work. It works in spite of them. Anyway, so... Here's the main reason I played that call. I could just say, hey, that's another product you can check out and put a link and done and, and be but done by now. It was more his comments about it seems to reduce watering requirements, which is doing more and more to bolster my ongoing working theory that hugelkultur works more for the structure that it creates than the spongy wood core. I, I, I believe that this has been completely misinterpreted by all of us in the beginning. I always knew something wasn't right about it. But I'm not the person that fights success. I think there's a lot of people, it doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to do it. And you got all these people doing it, and it works. And they're all bitching that it shouldn't work, so they're not going to do it. I, I was like, if it works, I'll try it. And if it really works, I'll keep doing it. So I did, and it worked. And it kept getting better and better and better as I kept trying different permutations and ways of doing it. But this is key. So if it, the fungal activity in the soil just from an inoculant, reduces irrigation requirements. What happens when you give the fungus a great big giant carbon core that does become spongy? And that fungal net has like this wonderful core that it's all inside of and it's stretching all through the soil. Remember, good soil, 500 kilometers of hyphae in a cubic meter, 380 miles in a cubic yard. Okay, think about it. A cubic yard of soil, hold your hand about three feet up off the ground, Now imagine three feet wide and, 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 and deep. That little cube has enough miles of fungal hyphae in it when it's managed properly that if you stretch them out end to end, it's almost 400 miles long. 
That's the fungal net that's now attaching itself to the roots and creating this, 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 uh, this symbiotic relationship with all the plants. So if we have a wood core in there, we're going to get more of that. And we're going to get a healthier fungal system. And if we inoculate it, it's going to go even faster. And if we cover it with wood chips, like Jack says to do, and everybody worries, oh, no, the nitrogen. If we do that, we're going to get an even more effective system. And all of a sudden, you get a system that's very, very resilient, very, very healthy, and because it's functioning like nature. A forest grows on a fallen forest, which means forests grow on wood that is being decomposed by fungus. They grow on themselves. That's how they reproduce. If you want to see natural culture, take a walk in a forest that's not been timbered for at least 50 years. You'll find trees that have reached their life cycle and have fallen over due to one reason or another, and you will see things growing right up out of them. And it's that fungal net that meshes in that makes it happen. So I'm about to put together a video that's going to be called Why Culture Works. And why we should call them woody beds. And it'll probably piss a bunch of people off. But this is more evidence that it's true. That it's not just... Because that log inside that hugoculture mound can only hold as much water as that log itself. 100% of it can't be. If, if there's anything left, 50% of it has to be carbon fiber. Right, So only 50% of that log can be water. And if we do the math, we're talking about even in a sizable bed, less than 100 gallons of water being held. That's not that much. But it can wick that water and it can fuel that fungal net. Very interesting. And uh, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, if conventional wisdom uh, eventually catches up to what I'm saying right now. And somebody will say someday that I'm not the one that did it, and I'll have this whole history on the podcast is proof that I figured it out first. I don't get real excited about things a lot, but I like getting to something first, and I think I have here. And the message is clear. Fungal nets in your garden, whether it's through inoculation or whether it's through forest soils, whether it's through woody material, that the fungal net itself is the key to true health, resiliency, and a natural ecosystem-styled garden or food forest. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Josh from Tennessee here. I'm a first-time caller. I would like to know your thoughts on prepping for alcohol production during a shit-hit-the-fan scenario. It seems that alcohol would be a valuable thing to be able to produce if times got tough. Whether it is beer, whiskey, or mead, many people like to have the comfort of a drink during hard times. To me, this would be an excellent barter item as well. I'm interested to know how you would prepare, how you would prep for home brewing. How would you store yeast? How would you control fermenting temperatures without electricity? How would you deal with sanitation? I am at a point in my preps that I would like to start stocking up on homebrew items. Heck, I've even thought of storing gallons of fruit juice. A gallon of fruit juice and a packet of yeast can easily be turned into alcohol. These are just a few questions that I have on this topic. Can you please expand on this and share your thoughts as to how you would prepare? Thanks in advance, Josh. Well, I would start with home brewing of beer and home winemaking and mead making in very simple extract form because the process that you'll learn there is sanitation, management, uh, bottling, 
uh, and, and you can start working on your yeast cultivation skills with this as well. Uh, but no matter what you're going to do, fermentation is going to be part of the process. So given that there's lots of easy, simple ways to get fermenting vessels and yeasts and prepared things and hops for your beer, uh, bottles, kegging systems and things like that, uh, and you're going to have to do fermentation even if you're making good old-fashioned moonshine, why not start with the skill that's universal across the board? You can then expand out into doing things like distillation, and you can use any different source you want for fermentation. I would probably suggest the next thing that you do after you get basic home brewing done with extract brewing is go ahead and teach yourself how to do all-grain brewing. If you can do all-grain brew beer, uh, uh, beer brewing, uh, then you're more than qualified to make distillated alcohol uh, because the, the mash conversion process is actually a little more critical that you get it right with beer because we're not going to go as far with the fermentation process and we're not going to go as far with the, uh, the purification through distillation that we will when we're making hard liquors. It's kind of a complicated way of saying this. There are certain things that you might do during the mash process um, when you're making beer that would show through as a flaw in the final product that wouldn't really show through as a flaw in the final product if you were making corn whiskey or vodka or something like that uh, because the process is more in-depth and involved and more purification happens as you distill the product. Right alongside the home brewing of beer and learning how to do full mash, I would be teaching myself to, and I've done all this, right? So I would be teaching myself to make wines. Because if I can make wine and I can distill it wine, then I can make brandy. So then the next part of the process would be distillation, This is where you get into gray areas and flat-out illegal areas of the law. And this is all I can tell you. I have never heard, ever, of a person that was sitting in their house making a bit of brandy for home consumption, harassed by, messed with, or screwed with by law enforcement. Maybe because they didn't know, I don't know, but it's it's the guys that are making it for sale that are the targets of uh, the ATF and and local law enforcement and and in many cases the FBI as well. Uh, the, the shiners like you see on the Moonshiner show and things like that, they're the ones that are coming after. Right now, if you want to go buy a still, okay, uh, for making moonshine, and and I mean for making, I mean advertise. This is for making moonshine. You can go do it, and you can buy all different types of them. And they'll tell you flat out, this is for making, and it's not illegal to make or sell the still. It's illegal to use it to distill alcohol. We all have to make our own choices about whether we're willing to do that or not. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that a very good friend of the show makes a product that some of you don't get, okay? Stephen Harris. He's got a little product. looks like a coffee maker. It's on a tabletop, and it makes alcohol. He said it on the air. I'll say it again. It's the same ethyl alcohol that you drink. It's the exact same one. To do it legally, you're supposed to get a permit, and you can do it enough times, and you can turn it into alcohol that you could use to fuel a car. It's not the most practical product to do that with because it's small and low-scale production, all, but it runs on very little energy. I'm trying to lead the cows to the pasture here, okay? 
with very little effort, someone could be producing a significant amount of alcohol with that product for human consumption, and it costs a couple hundred bucks, and it works really good, and it would distill anything on kind of an autopilot basis, including things like, oh, I've never done it, but I wonder what happens when you distill mead. Hmm, that's an interesting idea now, isn't it? There's a lot of things that can be done like this. Distillation is when you get into an area of illegality. I cannot endorse illegal behavior. All I can tell you is the products are available like the one from Stephen that's for learning how to make ethanol fuel. Okay, And there's products from websites where they flat out say, this is a moonshine still. Ours is better than brand Z's. Buy it here. There's also pot stills. And even Mother Earth News had an article out last month or two on making your own brandies and things like that at home and how it's a tradition in a lot of Europe and how basically it says in America they law enforcement just doesn't worry about that. You know, so it's, it's basically you make an apple wine and you use this little pot still and they use a candle and all with it to make an apple brandy. That's another route that you can go. But the fermentation and the mashing process to make beer, wines, and meads are all completely legal. There's also other ways that you can enhance the alcohol content of something that are considered distillation and technically illegal. I'm going to give you one for information purposes only. It's ice. Yes, by making... The, now, so a, a classic example of this would be a, a product called Applejack. Applejack, from my understanding, has its roots in England. Uh, farmers and the like would make a great big bunch of apple cider. Some of it would be for consumption right away. Some of it would go a special batch into a great big barrel. This barrel would be kept in a nice, drafty, cold barn. And all winter long, temperatures in that barn would routinely go below freezing, and ice would form in the top of the barrel. And the farmer and his winter duties would be out in the barn and look in the barrel, and there's a bunch of ice floating around in the apple cider, which, of course, has part alcohol and part not alcohol. And the water would freeze before the alcohol part. So every time he would see it, he'd skim the ice off, and skim the ice off, and skim the ice off, By the time spring rolled around, you had this nice, hearty, basically apple ice whiskey uh, with proofs up into 70% and 80%, depending on how much freezing and how much initial fermentation was done and how big the batch was and how cold the winter was. And it was different every year, and it was kind of cool. Just saying, a deep freezer with a thermometer, or what do you call it, a, a, not a thermometer, thermostat, and it, Holds the temperature like just below freezing at like 31 degrees and a fully fermented batch of something with the ice being skimmed off. Saying it kind of does the same thing. So I'm saying that there's, there's these areas that you're not supposed to go into, but does anybody really care? And you have to make that determination for yourself. And it may not be that you want to go do them. It may just be that you want to know how to do them. So in a situation like the guy's asking about, you could do them. Now, let's talk about the fact that how would you do this stuff if there's not a lot of electrical power around? Well, um, yeah. how would you control fermentation temperatures? You make your ales in the summer and your lagers in the winter with beer. Uh, you generally make your wines and things like that in the fall when the temperatures are still warm enough but cool enough that it's not overly warm. You do them seasonally like everybody did up until a couple hundred years ago. You boil your wort or you heat your mash or whatever you need to do, depending on what you're doing, with wood. 
Uh, use large metallic safe vessels for your cooking and your boiling and things like that. Uh, if you're doing it on a large scale, you do it the way that it's always been done. Uh, if you want to keep your temperatures cooler, you go below ground. If you want them warmer, you come above ground and you do it at the right time of year. Almost everything in the fermentation process and the alcohol-making process can be done without electricity. In fact, all of it can be done. Electricity just makes some of it a hell of a lot easier. Like, I don't know, if you were making an ice wine or an ice brandy and using a, a deep freezer with a thermometer. I don't know who would do that, but you know, somebody might accidentally leave their bucket of fermenting apple cider in the deep freezer and accidentally knock the ice. You see what I'm saying, right? So... That's kind of easier that way, but that can still be done seasonally because that's the original technique. Yeast. The, the easiest way to store yeast long term is to understand that yeast in the little powdered packets and all stores pretty good, but it has its finite limitation. But when we bottle beer or wine or mead, there's always a little sediment layer at the bottom. Tons of yeast there, okay? So tons of yeast there. So if you, like, when you pour that bottle out, you leave it like a last ounce in a bottle. And then you give it a little bit of sugar and some yeast nutrient and put a little air lock on it and set it up on a counter. In like a couple days, it'll be all, it'll be a big pile of sediment in there. And that's all now revived yeast. And you just pitch it into your next batch that uses the same yeast as the prior batch. And you can do that now. You don't have to wait for the shit at the fan. And that way you buy less yeast. And you can do that over and over again. As long as you don't pick up any flaws, you know that you're still dealing with a fairly pure yeast strain. And that yeast will store very well in that bottle of beer or wine or mead as compared to how well it will store in a little packet, whether it's liquid or dry. So that's how you propagate your yeast, which means even those of us, and I'm about to move into 100% kegging with beer, should probably in every batch of beer put aside one or two bottles, because I love to make beer and I hate the bottle, but uh, one or two bottles is fine for giving away and things like that, and then I know I'm going to have a nice recultivatable yeast. Another home brewing trick that's really, really cool and works really, really well. Let's say you're going to make two English ales, a mild ale and a strong ale. And the strong ale really is going to be strong, 8% alcohol, like really kind of a barley wine. And you need lots of yeast, but they can use the same yeast. So what do you do? You get your bucket that you ferment your 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 mild ale in or your your common brown ale in. You pitch your yeast, it does its thing. You siphon it off this big pile of yeast cake at the bottom of the fermentation vessel, which you know is clean because it's been sitting there fermenting for a week or two before you moved it off the bottle or secondary ferment it. There's no reason to secondary ferment a, a, a common brown ale. You can go seven days in the fermenter right into the bottle or the keg and be drinking it in three or four more days. It'll be just fine. But now you've got this this barley wine, right? So So what do you do? You brew on the same day that you bottle or keg. You take the new batch of wort, which is the stuff that's not been fermented yet. You put it right into the fermenting vessel, sitting on top of the giant cake of the yeast from the last batch. And there's like gazillions of them in there, literally. And you get a really aggressive, full, rapid fermentation. And now we get two cycles out of one package of yeast. And you actually get a better result with your stronger beer. So these are the kinds of things we should consider. And what the heck? It's not time for the music yet. You guys hear that coming in the background? No, no, no. We've got one more question. So, but that's the basics of what I would do. I would start out learning fermentation from fermentation. Uh, I would go in the whole, uh, the full, full mash brewing, partialed into full mash. Now I learn the mashing process. 
with those two, I can really do anything. The only thing I need to look at next is distillation, and I would play around with what's available, except I don't do that because it's illegal, and we're not allowed to do what's illegal. But there's all these ways it can happen. Hope that makes sense. One more question, and we're out for the day. Hey, Jack, this is Richard, who's moving to Idaho. Um, the area that I'm moving to is very flat uh, for the most part, although I know there's always contour lines everywhere. But it's very dry, it's high desert, very northern Arizona type. And I was trying to get your opinions on how efficient uh, or how likely it would be to be able to get a food forest uh, and swale type of uh, agriculture, I guess if you want to call it that, uh, into that type of landscape. Or if it would just be more efficient to put in some sort of irrigated uh, gardens, kind of more standardized. If I could just get your opinions on that, point me in the right direction, I'd appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye. Okay, I think the first thing that we got to get through, folks, so that we can understand what we're talking about when we say food forest, a food forest could be two or three acres of massive forest, and it could also be an area of a couple hundred square feet. And it's about emulating the structure of the forest. So there's no reason we can't actually provide quite a bit of irrigation in a, in a food forest system. I don't know the exact area of Idaho that you're moving to, but generally speaking, in the, the low rainfall areas, you're looking at about 12 inches a year, which is just over the technical definition of desert at 10. And it can be below that or a little bit above that. But it is pretty much a desert. It just doesn't feel like a desert because it's a hell of a lot cooler than what we think of when we think of a desert. So can you, can you build a swell based food forest with a, with a foot of rainfall a year is actually the question. And the answer is just, of course you can. Of course you can. Irrigation would be a good idea though. And what you might want to do is put in, you know, a couple swales, plant your system into that and then irrigate your swales to get the establishment. But the important thing that we need to understand when we talk about swaling, key line plowing, wood core beds or hugel culture, and all of these things, fungal inoculation, all these things that reduce the need for irrigation, we really have to start looking at them if we want to get the most out of them like alternative energy systems in a home. The first thing we want to do before we worry about the solar panel or the windmill, right, is we want to improve the efficiency. So if we go in and we put a swell-based system in, that doesn't mean we won't irrigate. It just means when we irrigate, it's going to be a hell of a lot more effective. And when we do get a rainfall event, it's going to charge the land up for a lot longer period of time. So I absolutely believe, Richard, that you can establish a food forest uh, in the high desert of Idaho. I, I can't tell you what particular plants are going to work best for you. It's not something. It's not an area I'm real familiar with, and it's not a climate zone that I'm real familiar with, but I think you can probably do a lot of wonderful things up there. The thing is for everybody to do is consider starting small. One of the things I've decided, and I'm going to try to map out and figure out exactly what I want to do this weekend and just kind of write it all up, is I'm going to establish a food forest right here on my property. I'm not going to put a swale in it one. I'm going to irrigate it. I'm going to mulch the hell out of it, and I'm going to establish it as something that gets minimal irrigation, especially once established, that's basically in a zone one, zone two, close to the house area. I haven't figured out exactly where yet. And it's not going to be that big. It's going to be as big as two or three bedrooms, maybe a little bigger than that. So that people can see that this process can be taken down as well as expanded out. 
And that's what I think a lot of people need to do. If you want to build a huge food forest, start playing with the guilds. The guilds are the different combinations of plants. Don't necessarily think you have to do it on a massive scale. Basically, a food forest can be a small orchard that's designed with more intelligence than a typical orchard. Typical orchard, we have a peach tree and a peach tree and a peach tree and a peach tree and then an apple tree and an apple tree and an apple tree and an apple tree. And we prune them a certain way. They're all the same distance apart. We run an irrigation dripper to each one. They're all in nice rows. And I'm saying we can take that approach and we can put, and we can put an apple and a pecan and a chestnut and a blueberry bush and blackberry bushes. And we can have herbaceous and all these different heights and clumpy textures. And that can be kind of just in a little round area on a small property. I'm going to build one for you. That's why I took this call, so I can tell you that I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to spend this weekend planning it out, drawing out all of the areas, putting some stakes in the ground, figuring that out. I might swale it. I might swale it by hand. Uh, and then again, I might not, because I might want to be able to get my little new cool lawnmower in and out of there without any kind of hiccups or anything like that. And we have irrigation available, and it's right there. And I'm telling you the thing about even that type of a food forest. And you probably need some irrigation or swaling where you're at. But in a place like I'm at, with some decent topsoil, even though the rock's not very far underneath the soil, once you establish a tree-based system like that with this polyculture, it's it's only the really arid environments that you need these swale-based systems in. They still make it better in a place where you don't maybe need them as much, but they'll get along quite well. And there's many ways to make um, what, what you would call your, your irrigation requirements very resilient beyond the needs for an electrical grid to be up. We talked about one today with pressure tanks. So I'll be expanding all of that. I think you should feel very encouraged, Richard, but I think that I, I know from talking to you personally by email, you haven't even found uh, your land yet. Now you found another place you're looking at a little harder. Pick a place, get established, start small, almost scale model it, And then, and then bring that model up. Learn the plants and things that work good in your, your environment. And one of the biggest advices I can give to anybody, pieces of advice, advices, advices isn't a word. The biggest pieces of advice that I can give to people who are saying, I want to plant, you know, anything in your area. Look at the native plants. What grows there naturally? And try to find the cultivated species that most closely resemble them from the nutrients they want, the day length they want, things like that. And realize there's always an advantage. Let me tell you a huge advantage, Richard, that you have over me, day length. Growing something as simple as an onion. You will be able to do things with onions and garlic where you're at that I can never get to happen here. Because my day length isn't as long, and alliums especially really are sensitive to day length. I have to actually be very selective with an onion variety in Texas if I want to grow a big, heavy-duty onion, like a, a like the, the, the Vidalia onions that grow in Georgia. We'll do pretty well here because they're more of a short day length uh, onion. But some of the other onions, they won't. You won't get really the big, giant onion that you're looking for. It's on the day length, so. Understand that it's you know the grass is greener scenario I talked about with picking a new place to live recently. That's so true in agriculture. Everything that you think is better somewhere else, you have something corresponding. So the way to really harness an area is not to focus on where your weaknesses are. You just need a little bit of that so you can strengthen them up. Find your strengths and build your system to your strengths. That's good advice in permaculture and agriculture. And it's good advice in life in general. And with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. 
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.